So, so nice to meet you guys. It's really nice to meet you too. Thank you. Thanks for agreeing to do it this way. Of course. Yeah. No, it makes more sense, right? Yeah, this is great. It's the wild, wild west. We're trying to figure this out. Usually the, how we started off is, hi. Uh, oh, so I'm Dave. And the other person is Holly. <laughs> and I'm Holly. <laughs> uh, we'll just start off with um, usually Holly and I just have like a little back and forth introduction and then we'll introduce you and then uh, we'll take it away. Is that all right? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> hey, Holly. Hey, Dave. What's going on? How are you? I feel so distant. Yeah, it is a little bit uh, different for us. You're 10 miles away. Usually you're 10 feet away. So uh, it's a little bit different. Yeah. We're getting used to this, doing the Zoom thing, doing the best we can with what little we got. So the audio might not be perfect, but it's still going to be the what difference does it make podcast that you expect. (laughs) I'm very excited today. Yes. Uh, Would you like to introduce our guest? This is exciting. We have with us Leslie Kogan Gold. Leslie was married to Andrew Gold, legendary singer, songwriter. Our listeners may know him from his hit Lonely Boy, but he has a vast library of music, which you will know. You'll realize if you're listening to this podcast how much you know. I've had a lot of fun this week just going down the Andrew Gold, <laughs> just the rabbit hole of uh, of everything that he touched. Everything I love in the 70s, Andrew Gold kind of had a part in it which is pretty amazing. She's going to tell us all about Andrew. But first, let's talk about Leslie. Actually, you look pretty neat back there. Your face looks pretty um, well organized. Oh, yeah. See, over here, I don't know if I can turn this. See, over there are gold records. And and there are, can you see the, you can start seeing all the, the 70s tapes. Those are real. Those look like real to real. That's the, that's the vault, huh? Yeah, that's part of the vault. Yes, yes. There's a lot of video stuff elsewhere, but yes, that is. <laughs> but I wanted to get some background on Leslie. It, it sounds as I looked through uh, what what you gave me. Um, it looks like you grew up. You went to Purdue University. Did you grow up in yes. Indiana? Is that no, is that safe to no, say? No, no. Chicago, Chicago. Oh. Go Cubs. Go Cubs! I was gonna say, go Boilermakers, but uh, but you're well, no, go Cubs, go Cubs. All right, we're Dodger fans, but we'll allow it go for Dodgers. this. Uh, that's my second favorite because <laughs> this is my second home, and Andrew grew up here, so I like the Dodgers too. Very nice. Funny thing is, I looked on your LinkedIn file uh, or your LinkedIn page, and it says your act when it said members of activities and societies, it says beer and boys. Um, <laughs> well. <laughs> Which is rare to see in a LinkedIn profile. So that was kind of nice and refreshing. That's my personality. I'm a goofball. <laughs> Were you going to ask her to elaborate? No, uh, no, no. no. And, and music. I should add it. beer boys and music. Yeah, very good. So uh, I, I take it you were a music fan growing up. Oh, yes, yes. I always kind of wanted to have a music career and I played guitar. So I think when I ended up marrying Andrew. That was the way I lived that out. And I look back now and I go, wow, you know, I married a rock star and it still sort of, you know, blows my mind that that actually happened. Yes. But I was always a big music fan growing up in Chicago, Led Zeppelin, a lot of rock groups like that. So, and my dad owned a bar and he 
was friends with the owner of Ticketmaster, the guy who ran it in Chicago. I think it was called Ticketron back then. Mm-hmm. And he'd bring them, he'd bring the guy bottles of Chevis Regal to get me front row seats. <laughs> so I saw a lot of concerts up front and center and I took photos. So that was something I almost did. I almost became a photographer because of that. So oh, all these great photos of performers from way back when. And you got permission for that? Because I remember back in the day, you couldn't bring in a camera or anything like that. Uh, I managed to do it somehow. <laughs> you know, I would just find my way up there. Or yeah, they, I, I don't really remember them being as strict as they are now with cameras, maybe with flashes. I never used a flash. Okay. So what were some of your memorable concerts that you went to? Some of your favorites? And your first, your first, because we always like to ask. Oh, oh God. Yeah. It's so embarrassing. David Cassidy. Nice. Uh, when I was very, very little with my sister, and then Chicago, I saw next. And then in high school, there's a lot of blur, but uh, I saw <laughs> Queen actually open for, I think, Mott the Hoople. And we didn't know who Queen was. And I remember we were blown away because it was so good live, even though we didn't know who they were. You're going to hear a meow soon. Yes, my cat <laughs> insulted he's not in this interview. So I that's part of the Zoom charm now is is everyone gets to put their their pets in the, on the uh, on the interviews. And then Emerson Lincoln Palmer with the orchestra. Let's see who else did I really love back then? Hart. I thought Hart was really good, and I liked seeing women, so that was cool. Um, Led Zeppelin, like I said, even though they did cancel one of the concerts because. Um, Jimmy Page, I guess, was a little bit out of it. So I was there at that one. I was at an Aerosmith one where there was a fire and we all believed. <laughs> was there a fire on stage or was this? Uh... In the stadium. It's in their book, too. They write about it. It was in the stadium. And I remember wow. people weren't leaving. <laughs> like They were probably all stoned. But, and, and I was like, why aren't people leaving? There's actually a fire. I think it was White Sox Park. Wow. And it was uh, the guy who sang rock and roll coochie coo and Rick um, Derringer. Yeah. And Joe, oh God, the great guitar player. Uh, oh God, I forget his name. A great guitar player who doesn't sing was also in it. But yes, I remember that concert because of the fire. <laughs> and that was, what? yeah, at Sox Park, they also had Disco Demolition Day there. So they've had a lot of oh, fires yeah. at the at Kaminsky. Yeah, that was Steve Dahl, right? Who did that yeah. at the radio? Yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah. Good, yeah. good times in Chicago. Yes. <laughs> so that's nice. So you, your dad had a bar. Is that what was the name of the bar? Bohemian Club. It was now. It's in a very fancy neighborhood. It's right by Michigan Avenue. Oh yeah. And he had a lot of great stories, and a famous painter actually painted the bar, and one of the pictures is in the in Paris in the Egyptian what's it called the you know the Louvre? where they no where like the United States has one the oh god my my brain is 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 blown out today but it's it uh, the you know where people other countries have an office the so embassy? embassy embassy thank you oh okay <laughs> that word that I could not think of yeah it's in the Egyptian embassy in Paris so I thought that was very cool because I wanted the painting so I found the artist who did all this research, and he said, well, that's where it is. And I go, I guess I can live with that. <laughs> that's really cool. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's awesome. Did he have live music in the bar? He had my picture on the ceiling from college <laughs> when I was running for homecoming. I don't really think there was a lot of music you could hear. 
it was more of a tavern, you know, where people, you know, just were talking. Yeah. More than a music venue. Still very cool. Yeah, and he, a secret dream to own a bar. Yeah. And I think at Christmas there might have been music because he told me he would get up on the bar and dance. So there must have been. <laughs> But I was very young, so I wasn't allowed to go in there. So just kind of a for, forbidden uh, workplace. Yeah, one day during the day let me in, but in general, because, you know, I was underage. So you graduate from Purdue. Was it your goal to move to L.A., or what What was the what happened after, after you graduated? Well, when I was a freshman, I realized that I really wanted to be in California because I visited California with my sister, so I almost transferred to UCLA. Mm. But then I started having so much fun at Purdue, I stayed. And I always wanted to. And when I worked at IBM, I thought about transferring several times. And then just finally I did. And, you know, a lot of it happens because, you know, I was involved with somebody for a very long time. So that kind of kept me from moving. You know how that goes. Yeah, yeah. Relationships will do that. And then when the relationship ended, I moved. What was was in L.A. or what? Just just opportunity that that you were hoping for? Well, I first fell in love with San Francisco, so I was going to move to San Francisco because it reminded me of Chicago, but dreamier. And then I met some friends in L.A., and that's why I moved to L.A. Okay. Uh, and what what were you doing in L.A.? Initially? At first, I am, yeah, but I really wanted to do a more creative career, so I was trying to switch into something like uh, post-production because I was still a, I'm a geek. So I was trying <laughs> to do something more creative but apply my geekdom. So I almost went to work for Avid, and then I started going to UCLA Extension and taking courses in film and post-production and production, and then I started writing. So I just started kind of dabbling in and those kind of things, you know, and, and did try to write for a long time and then quit IBM and did odd jobs. And then I met Andrew. So there you go. How did you meet? Yeah. Let's hear the beat cute. How, how, how do we, well, I was trying to help a friend get to Stephen Bishop who had done art for t-shirts, these beautiful t-shirts that she painted. So I knew a lot of rock people in San Francisco and L.A., but I didn't know that group of people. I didn't know like the Jackson Brown, Crosby, Andrew people. I knew more of the San Francisco like Journey, those kind of people. So I told my friend, I could probably find this guy for you and get, you know, your T-shirts to him again. So Andrew was producing Stephen at the time. He was very accessible online. So I started contacting him in an effort to help my friend. And then Andrew and I just, you know, kind of hit it off and things, you know, one thing led to another and we became good friends. And that, that, that is actually how I met him. Wow. So it's a very odd thing. What year is that? What year was this or what, around what time? 96, 1996. Okay. So, yeah. So the internet was just kind of taking off and. Right. And it was AOL. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know. You met in a it, chat room. Is that what was going on? <laughs> I emailed, I saw him talking about Stephen in a Stephen Bishop chat room, and then I emailed him. And his handle was QBrain, so, and he just was very accessible. He, he talked to his fans. He always was like that. If someone asked him a question about how did you do the incredible lead, you know, 32 would have bar thing for Linda Ronstadt, he would literally answer for a fan exactly how he did it. So he was very interactive with the internet. He was also a geek. So he liked technology. Did he stay that way? Even when it started to take off more and realize more people can access him, he stayed that way. Yes. And he was always really kind and wonderful to his fans. He's just very generous about talking to them. Very good. I hear that a lot. And what, what was QBrain? 
Because I've that's the name of his company. But is there a story behind what Q stands for? Yes. <laughs> it was short. It was a shortened version of Quark Brain. And I guess when he was a kid or a teenager, one of his friends teased him, or he teased his friends saying, "Your brain is really small." And I guess Quark, a quark, was the smallest object in the world. So that was the joke. Quark Brain. So yeah, he made that his publishing company and then his independent record label. I still have it on my license plate. Oh, that's awesome. That's your, that's your license plate, Q-Brain? Yes, and that was the first gift he gave to me was when he changed cars, he pulled it off and he gave it to me. And I still have that. It's like a priceless thing. Priceless <sighs> gift. Yeah. He, he does explain that on his podcast. I was listening to his first podcast. His love hour? Yeah, the love hour. <laughs> yeah, and he explained that in the first one, Q-Brain. Yeah, so that's what it is. That's the story. Love it. Now, were you familiar with his music gr- growing up, or was it just kind of a serendipitous? Or you know, how- okay. Well, <laughs> see, one of my goals is because of this is to get Andrew known more in the universe for who he is and his musical contribution to history rather than knowing some of his songs, because he, he did substantial work. It's amazing. But for me, growing up, I knew Lonely Boy, and thank you for being a friend, because I wasn't from California. So I wasn't just familiar with the, you know, the California you know, you know, music scene, mm-hmm. as people who grew up here were. So I knew some of his songs, but I didn't know him when I met him. So what I really fell for first, he was, he's the funniest person I ever knew. So he was so funny. That's what got me first. And then he sent me his bio right away. Like right when I met him, he sent me his bio and his picture from when he was like 23. It was really funny. It's like, <laughs> <laughs> and, and his, he had this illustrious bio, you know, with all these people he worked with. And then the one thing I commented on, which became this romantic thing between us was he was Alvin of the chipmunks. So I, I emailed him back and said, you were Alvin. Oh, that is so cool. And I didn't you know, mention any of the other magical things he did. So to answer your question, I knew his songs, particularly lonely boy, which I really loved. Yeah. I, then obviously as I got involved with him, I learned much, much more. Yeah. I did notice he, he does like to do a lot of quirky things besides the chipmunks. I saw he, he worked on the Simpsons. He, he did, um, <laughs> He were he was a musician arranger for Albert Brooks Albert Brooks album and uh, he did he did some work with the Sugar Beats which actually I know because you know my kids were growing up uh, in the in the 90s and that's we we had a lot of that music so he he seemed to like uh, a little of the quirky or you know just children's music and just uh, things that had a little little fun, sense of fun to them. Oh yeah, he also did these these phone messages. Remember, we all used to have outgoing phone messages on a machine. Even when he was a kid, he did this. He was sort of famous for this, or infamous, maybe is the better word, where he would parody the Beatles or CSN or Bob Dylan and say, you know, Andrew's. I'm not going to sing. That would be awful for you. Uh, but you know, Andrew's not at home right now. But it would be like Bob Dylan, or he would do the Day in the Life. Sound exactly like the song because he could do that because of his ear. Mm-hmm. So these outgoing phone messages were magnificent, and some of them are very funny. Where he would pretend there was a beep, and people would start screaming into you know <laughs> get really mad. Well, Andrew ain't in the home right now. He can't come to the phone. Don't leave your name and number when you hear that lonesome tone. 
ain't gladly talk to you right now, I'd like to guarantee. But I can't speak on his behalf since I'm not really he. So he did those, which I found when I was doing my archival work, extra ones that he hadn't released. And he yeah, he did a comedy hour, I found, where there's all these really funny songs. So yes, he, he did put his humor and his quirkiness into his music a lot. Hold on. Can we take a break? Yes, we can take a break. Do what you got to do. You do you, I'll do me, and we'll be right back. Podcast listeners, Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house, and my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode, available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So, what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right, you'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Okay, so back with our mediocre audio. Let's go back to our conversation with Leslie Kogan Gold. I was glad to be able to do all this research this week because I had no idea. I mean, I, of course, was, was a fan, lonely boy, and thank you for being a friend. And I knew, you know, right. what I thought was enough. But getting to listen to all this stuff and then the, the you know, the preview of some of the, th- the songs that you're releasing, it's fantastic. I mean, it's really his history. It's so deep. I mean, with all the artists that he's worked with, everybody, you know, we, we grew up loving. I, I really had no idea the depth of it. So this was great to, to learn yeah, so- and what he did for Linda Ronstadt, I mean, he he changed her sound. You know, there's a, if you look at the decar- demarcation line of "You're No Good" before and after, she's sort of flailing mm-hmm. a bit as the country country rockish, and then he infused that rock sound with "You're No Good," and after that, she became the biggest female rock star of the 1970s. So he's really uh, the mastermind behind that, and you know, made her really, really big because of the rock that you know, all the songs after that had the guitar orchestra. That's what I like to call it in it, but he arranged you're no good. He played almost all the instruments. He stayed up all night and, you know, and, and just worked on that song too. And then it was her first and last, it was her only number one. So he was really important in, in her career. 
there there are genes, I, I guess. He's got some nice musical genes, uh, parents, who uh, was Ernst Gold and Marnie Nixon. Ernst Gold did, uh, was the composer for Exodus, and Marnie Nixon, you probably know her as the the singer who, behind the scenes, always remind, whenever I think of Marnie Nixon, I think of Singing in the Rain, because she was the, the person who was doing the singing, you know, while everyone else lip-synced. She sang for Deborah Kerr and King and I, Audrey Hepburn for I Fair Lady, and uh, Natalie Wood uh, in West Side Story. Did you get to meet Ernest? I did not meet Ernest. Uh, oh, it's he, Ernest. I'm uh, sorry. Ernest Gold. Ernest Gold. He, he, won, he won the Academy Award for Exodus, and he also did Mad Med World and a number of other movies. And I did not get to meet him, which makes me really sad, although Andrew told me he would have really liked me, which made me happy. <laughs> but I did know his mother. I did know Marnie. Yeah. She, you know, she, was, she, she, she died after him, actually. Yeah, yeah. Yes. Even though he did his own thing and his rock, had, you know, was was something he did. You know, they did allow him to have instruments. I mean, he played the drums, which drove them crazy, and he learned all the instruments on his own. So they did nurture him musically, and I think he was probably more influenced by his dad because he was a composer. They were both composers, but rock was really different. It really represents the change from you know Broadway music, classical music, you know, to rock. His family represented that change. But yeah. they, you know, they were happy he did that. But uh, he, he told me he would have all these really colorful conversations with Ernest about like the chord changes that the Beatles were doing, you know, things like that, where they would, you know, just talk about it because it was so different from Ernest's music. Yeah, you know, typical father son conversation. <laughs> when music is changing, right, yeah. right. But yeah, but he started very early. And uh, I mean, there's really cool stories that I've discovered because I'm trying to do, you know, some passion projects, one, which is a play. So I learned a lot about what he was like when he was a kid. And I interviewed Marnie before she died. I videoed it. So I would have it also for documentary. And she said that he wanted he did he never learned to read music. He had this amazing ear but that he could re- reproduce anything he heard like right away. It was like freaky. But when he was very young, he was probably about eight, she wanted him to learn to read music and he was, you know, said, No, I don't want to do it. But he agreed if he could learn the overture to West Side Story, which is obviously a little bit too hard for an eight year old, typically. But they found a simple version and they put it in front of him, the the piano teacher. So he starts playing this. And then the teacher realizes that he's doing it from ear and she pulled the the sheet music away and he kept playing. And so it's sort of like the Elton John thing in that movie. So he could do that. And, you know, it was which was astonishing that he was playing it in time perfectly from just hearing it because his mother was singing for the movie at the time, I guess. Uh, so, so that those are the kind of stories you would hear from Marnie and how he learned music. And then when he was 16, he got a record deal in England. So it started very early for him. <laughs> and his first band that he was in, Brindle, had, were these high school friends? Kenny Edwards, Winnie yes. Waldman, and Carla Bonoff? I mean, what a what a super group! It, you know, just such a talented group that he was able to band with. You know, so such at such an early age. Right, that, you're right. They play were the first band to play at McCabe's in Santa Monica. But he also had little bands before that with his childhood friends too. They just weren't as famous as Brindle, but he did have several bands with other people before that as well earlier. But then yeah, Brindle was in '70, and then. They had a record. It never came out. I think it should come out. 
Uh, Do you uh, own the rights to that? <laughs> I know it's, it's got to be agreed to between Wendy and Carla, but Andrew wanted to release it. There's one song I have that's mine called Crunch Bunny. It's a silly name, but <laughs> it's, a, it's a wonderful song. And, but the whole album sounds very like Laurel Canyon, and I, I think they should release it. I think it's really, really wonderful. I'm discussed it with them or are they yes. in there they're not on board or I think Carla you know I think they maybe feel it was you know that they got better later or something and, and you know she thought they didn't want to release it and I said hey Andrew did you know so I hope they decide to I think Wendy hopefully will you know talk her into it yeah one day that's hard I mean if it's representative of the time I know so everybody gets better with age right well right <laughs> Right. And, and it's part of your history. And, yeah. and it is good. Believe me, it's good. So I think, yeah, fans would really like to hear it, which is why I'm releasing something new. I mean, some of the, those are 1973 demos, some of those, and that's the same kind of thing. So is this what happened? Yeah. So like right, right after Brindle broke up, he, he created these, these demos. Is this what the story is or how did this yeah, come when about? When were they, when, like at what period of his, of his yeah. life? All right, so he was in another band called the Rangers at, around then, which had Peter Bernstein and a couple of his other friends, Kenny Edwards and Gene Garfin, and who I can't find. So if you know where Gene is, if somebody hears this, uh, and so they they were trying to do some music, and then that band broke up, and then he went on to play with Linda. And then his first record deal came out in 1975. So these songs were sort of right in that period, right before that, 73, 74. And then in 75, he had the record deal with Electra Asylum. And some of these songs in different forms made it on the first record. And it's interesting to hear the difference between one, 10 years behind me. It's a guitar version and it's simple. And then it's, it's much fuller in its piano version on the first album. So you can hear the difference. Long lonely sound like a distant wolf or hound with the slowing of the wind inside the canyon. I gazed upon the night without loneliness or fright. It was fine to have a woman by my side. That was ten years behind me, beside me, the woman showed me how to love. 
of what I don't have now. And then uh, Resting in Your Arms came out on the first album. It's called Resting in Your Love on this one. So you basically mm. just changed the lyrics and the title on that one. And then some of them fell through the cracks till now, of course. Did you know this whole time what you were sitting on, you know, all, all this and, and how far back did so you I, start? I This took years. So when he passed away, I started going through piles and piles of CDs and DDDs, his Pro Tools system, all of his backup discs, and what I like to call are the Valley of the Dats. There were a lot of digital audio tape. So I had a professional transfer them because I was told don't do that at home because they can go, you know, they're fragile. So I, I had all these tapes transferred and then I went through all of this music. And that's when I started to find some of these things. So I did not know about much of this until I started going through it. He was so prolific. He just kept writing and writing and writing. So there were so many songs also on these tapes were, you know, p- other people he produced. I found, I, I heard Randy Newman on there, mm. Stephen Bishop, Art Garfunkel. So even other people would appear. And also John Anderson. That was, was just interesting of, of yes. So I would find other people on these, these um, tapes. And he even recorded his friends in their garage when they were on acid. <laughs> it's like when they were like in high school and I have those, those were also on these. So he tried to record everything. Like I said, he was a geek. He also filmed a lot of stuff. He, he filmed Linda in the mid 1970s. The camera must've been huge. So I have this magnificent video as well. So this was like a treasure trove and I had to just sort of slowly but surely go through it. And it was yeah enormous project and I had an engineer help me cut up all the because the dads would come to us in one big stream and we'd cut up the songs also on there are a number of unfinished works which is sort of one of my pet projects that I'm hoping to have other artists finish the songs anything from just a lyric to a track to a track with the melody vocalized and some of them actually have lyrics so every iteration of a song I found and, and they're beautiful Wow. So I'm really hoping that they make it out in the world and it's, it's somebody can virtually then write with Andrew with these. Do you like, already have in mind who you think would be good for some of these songs? Oh, I do. You know, <laughs> I have my fantasy list. So I have to figure out how to get, you know, that pulled off. Yes. I bet you'll have a lot of takers. <laughs> well, yeah, I think a lot of people who are fans or, you know, a lot of people in the music business know them would like to write with him. And if I get the right person at the helm, I mean, there's some people that are super fans, like Dave Grohl's super fans. If you get people like that involved, I think, you know, the others will follow, right? Hopefully. Yeah. That would be a dream project, although I imagine it's overwhelming. Yes. Yes. And I still have more stuff to go. I have, like, boxes and boxes of cassettes I haven't gotten to. I'm like, oh. But (laughs) I'll resume at some point. So to answer your question, yeah, I had no idea of how much there was on on these, you know, old, you know, technologies. On the road, it's hard to guess just where you may be. Since I left to guns, it seems like some remembered dream. You told me that you'd wait around to see how much would last.
been having some fun talking with Leslie Kogan Gold, and we will return next week. Are you enjoying this, Holly? Uh, this is great. This has been so much fun getting the backstories. I, I can't wait till part two. Okay, so until next week, this is Dave. This is Holly. Check you later. Over and out. What you mean to me? It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.